Welcome to the Art of Faith podcast. I'm Pastor Joshua Kapczynski, and this is a production of Granite Creek Studios. Today, I have a special solo project. My co-host, Pastor Joel Fairley, moved off to retire, so I'm doing this one on my own, and maybe maybe someday we'll get a new co-host, or maybe we'll pipe him in somehow. But it's good to be back, and I have a I have something very special that I want to that I want to talk about. It's a little out of the ordinary for our typical podcasts, which are in nature very visual because we're usually showing artwork of some sort. So I don't have any specific artwork to show, and so no show and tell today. But last week, uh, actually on Sunday, so just a few days ago, I went to go see uh, Jordan Peterson speak live uh, in Thousand Oaks. And it, it made a pretty big impact. I've been a fan of Jordan Peterson for a long time. Um, shortly after his, his, his controversy. So some of you that don't know who he is. Um, and, and actually, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to make this podcast. Because uh, on Sunday, as I was all dressed up, because uh, I, I was super excited about this event that, that we were, me and my friend were going to. So on Sunday, I was all dressed up, and so people were asking me after after the sermon, you know, why are you wearing a suit? And so, well, I get to go see Jordan Peterson, and I was really surprised at how many people have never heard of his name uh, in my church. My the the this really uh, um, let's see, how do I describe Claremont? Uh, our congregation is uh they're they're well educated smart hardworking people and so i was really surprised that um a number of people had never heard of this guy and you know the people that hadn't heard of him like they're even on the conservative side of the spectrum so probably my number one purpose for this podcast on this one individual is to highlight who he is and why he's important to society, and even more importantly, why he is important for the church. So, first and foremost, Jordan Peterson uh, is a clinical psychologist uh, who is tenured at the University of Toronto, and he has been uh, teaching there for a very long time. He's extremely intelligent, and he would also carry a very heavy workload of patients that he would see. So he's a very active psychologist slash professor. He taught not only at the University of Toronto, but also at Harvard and a couple of other universities. Uh, he is the big brain on campus, extremely intelligent man. Uh, he's written several books and papers and uh, journals, uh, so he's at least at one time, he was very respected in his in the academic community before he got controversial. And he's done some groundbreaking psychological studies. Um, he's got groundbreaking uh, educational material uh, based off of psychology that, if implemented, could revolutionize our educational system. So, Big brain, in short. Now, he got himself uh, into the public light. I don't remember the exact year. I want to say it was 2016, 2017. Um, but he was 
he's being interviewed about something or he ended up at a protest of something and the issue was in um uh, gender affirming names of some sort so it was the pronoun issue which is a big debate uh to our day but when it first came out uh he stepped up to the plate as a psychologist not as a not as a christian not as a theologian, not as a moralist, um, but he he came, he brought it to the attention that um, making place in the in the civic sphere, in the public setting, to recognize and enforce or change what genders are. Uh, would be bad for the individuals and in short bad for society so uh basically you know he came out with with he didn't came out come out with it he just took this really hard line stand that men and men are men and, and girls are girls and there's a biological difference between them now you can he'd probably say you can pretend that you're a boy or a girl or you can identify as a boy or a girl um but society or um, the civic organizations government should not be trying to mix things up so we shouldn't be going into the he she zerzems and all the different multiple pronouns that we're coming to and trying to accommodate everyone and again his his position was that it's bad for the individual and specifically he's even doing more work on this currently but specifically for young people who don't even know like, you know, children, like, you know, they don't know if they want to be a boy or a dinosaur. It's not safe to incorporate them into saying that they could be something else, that they were born something else. So from a clinical um, uh, expert, he was saying that this is, this is not good and it's not healthy. And he was showing up to protests and he was having conversations about this issue and why and why it could be so harmful, again, to individuals and to society. He, he got thrust into the public eye uh, because he was courageous in that moment. And um, the, the fascinating thing about that moment in his history and in his career as a professor, um, you know, standing up for what he thought and, and facing the media about it, is that the media couldn't really dismantle him. They couldn't frame an argument against him. They had a very hard time making him look bad or making him look like a bigot or making him look like um, you know, a misogynist of some sort. And you know, he even he 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 stepped up to the plate on gender roles, which was a, a huge issue. Um talking about, well, or maybe I'll save that one for the next one. So anyway, he became a very controversial and yet visible public voice all over the world, uh, almost overnight. And uh, and then he just ran with it. And he is an, he's got such a strong mind and such a strong will uh, that he just kind of locked in and he took on the challenge. And he's still going very strong. He's very influential to this day. Um, currently... He is, um, he's got a show on the wedding wire. His claim to fame is his YouTube channel. Uh, he is, he would do, uh, YouTube podcasts every, almost every day. 
with an extremely large audience of millions uh, that would watch his, his show. And a large majority of them, ironically, uh, were young men. So young men are, are just really gravitating to, to this psychology professor of all things. So that's a little bit of, of the controversy. Now, um, he frames out some other important, what we might call conservative issues, although he, he wouldn't fall into the American definition of a conservative or a right-wing uh, representative. He, he's, he's Canadian, first of all, which uh, I don't, you know, that in and of itself is, is mind-boggling, but he's a Canadian. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with Canadians, and he, he'll, he'll make fun of himself for being a Canadian. Um, but he would classify himself as uh, a classical liberal or a classical, he, he, excuse me, he would, he would categorize himself as a British liberal or a classic conservative. Again, so he probably, he wouldn't be voting for some of the people that, that may, maybe you and I would vote for. Um, but his philosophy would definitely fall into um, a capitalist view. So his view on the economy would be hands-off. So the laissez-faire, the invisible hand, the John, uh, yeah, I believe John Adams' uh, economic model that it's not the government's responsibility to determine uh, what takes place or to manipulate or push the economy. You're just going to let the economy take care of itself. So that means that he would not support any subsidies or any government funding for any specific uh, program. So uh, like housing subsidies, uh, he would say it, it, the market, the market determines what the rate is. Uh, the government shouldn't determine what prices are. I mean, that's, I'm sure that would be a very frustrating thing right now if you're trying to find an apartment in Southern California or trying to buy a home in Southern California. It, it is, um, you know, it's interesting, but what Jordan Peterson would say well, if you can't afford it, then go somewhere where you can't afford it. And that's and that's just how things, that's how the economy functions. And and so he's a libertarian in that sense. That means he just, he just you know, hands off. The government shouldn't be messing around with anything uh, with the exception of supporting an individual's freedoms and civil, civil liberties. And uh, that's where he would fall over in the conservative a classic conservative side in that it is the government's role to preserve um, the personal freedoms of individuals. So he's on that side of the things. Now, I'm sure, of course, you know, and he is a Canadian, so he's going to support uh, social welfare programs, um, you know, like Social Security or something like that. So he's not going to be totally extreme. He's He probably even believes that there's some be some type of universal health care at some level. I'm not quite sure about that. Don't quote me on that. I probably should research that. Anyway, um, but he, because he's he is uh, a realist and a compassionate conservative, and that you know he would say that it is the government's responsibility um, to meet the needs of individuals in society that can't help themselves, and so that's why he's a psychologist. 
So people that mentally are unstable, you know, it was his job to take care of people in that sense. So, you know, it's a little bit of a mix. I think it's a healthy mix of where he's at. And, um, but anyway, that's a little bit about his position and, and who he is. Some of the other issues that he's addressed besides the whole um, um, pronoun gender dysphoria thing, and he would refer to it as gender dysphoria instead of identity issues, um, is that he has been uh, very outspoken about the woke mob. He has been very vocal about censorship. He himself has been censored several times. Twitter kicked him off or disrespected quoting something and it wasn't even that bad um so you know that is uh that is definitely one of his his, his points is that we need to be able to have a, a avenue for free speech um let's see what else i'll leave that at the social stuff but he's been also and this is probably why uh, a number of young people young specifically young men have you know flocked to his youtube channels and they have you know uh, um jumped on the jordan peterson bandwagon uh is his push for personal responsibility so he's a fascinating guy in that um he wants you know he wants the government to have hands off he is definitely anti-communism uh one of the reasons why i love him is because and this will fit this show one of the reasons why I, I love him is because he is a huge art fan. And so he's a, he's a collector of art. Um, when he was a poor uh, teacher and a poor professor, he would still try and spend money on works of art. And so he's got an absolutely incredible collection of uh, Soviet era art. Now, he does not, he does not like communism at all uh, in socialism. Uh, you know, not as much, but doesn't like socialism either. But he will, he did a huge, harsh critique on Marxism and communist ideology, and basically saying that those tyrannical regimes, and well, this is actually fact. It's not him, it's not his opinion. This is fact. It's a historical fact. They're the most dangerous and, uh, and deadly regimes that the world's ever seen. So, uh, Stalin's Russia. Uh, Pol Pot in Vietnam, uh, Mao in communist China. I mean, they killed. I mean, they killed more people than than the Nazis ever could dream of. Uh, I, I think Stalin alone doubled what Hitler killed um, during the concentration camps. And the the uh, anyway, uh, so a staunch uh, critic and and adversary of communism, and he's got so psychological and social responses and reasons for it because it just breaks people all right so uh, but again back to you know so he's got this huge worldview and he's got this you know he's got his political uh leanings um he's concerned about society in whole in general and and yet he is very uh interested in the individual he's got well, he's written several books. Um, probably his most famous book was The 12 Rules uh, for Life. It is an antidote to chaos. And this was such a huge book. And this is based, probably based off of a lot of his videos, his YouTube videos that he did. Is it 12 Rules for Life? 
just really drills drills down on personal responsibility. One of his axioms is that uh, if you want to have um, a healthy psychological mindset, uh, one of the things that you have to do is clean your room. And I mean, that just sounds like something that your mother would tell you, right? Uh, but he's got some he's got some scientific proof for it that if your room is clean, then your mind will be clean, and it, it just it just really messes with you. But it's a it's a really, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna promote it. I'm gonna push the book. It's a really good book. Uh, and then his recent one, which I was on, when I went to go see him on the book tour, uh, is another twelve rules. Um, I forgot the subtitle, but he's got 12 rules and then another 12 rules. And so uh, he is, in my opinion, a very important figure. Whether you agree with him or not, I think he's going to go down as uh, probably the pre predominant intellectual thinker of our time. And he's going to, you know, if something bad doesn't happen to him, uh, he's got longevity under his belt, and he will, he's going to stay around for a very long time. And I think he's going to continue to be influential. Uh, so this conference that uh, that I went to go see with my friend. Now it was, I you know I, I'm going in as a fanboy, so I'm going in like knowing his material. Uh, again, I've read two of his books already. Uh, there was. He's got another book called The Maps of Meaning, and I couldn't handle that one. That one was just way too heady and over the top of my head. Yeah, and 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 warning, like his stuff is, it's just, you know, it's just, it's 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 a big it's a big dinner to eat, and it's very complex, and it really challenges your vocabulary. So if your vocabulary isn't up to snuff, you might need to get the dictionary out when you read his books. So that's probably going to turn a lot of people off, but. Oh uh, yeah, I couldn't hang with maps of meaning, but uh, the other two I finished, and I, and I absolutely love them. So what I and I this is going to get to the point about what I really want to say, like, and why am I, you know, why am I puffing this guy up so much? Uh, something kind of hit me at at this at this conference. Now it was at a big auditorium in uh, Thousand Oaks, and so. We were in the nosebleed seats. You know, it's not like I could see him very well. But just like going to church, there was something about being in the building and, you know, being in the audience. I think I just heard things and witnessed things that uh, I couldn't have saw or witnessed or felt if I had, like, just, you know got it online if i would have been you know a member in the live audience i don't think i would have felt the same gravitas as as i would when i was there and i don't think that some of his uh his language would have landed on me the way that it did when i was in person and again i'm up the nosebleed seats so i'm like not not there but it, you know when you're in a congregation with people it's just i don't know weird thought so As I'm in this event, um, and it's a secular event. Again, one thing that, that I need to highlight is that uh, Jordan is not a pastor. Uh, he's not a theologian. He's not a religious leader at all. And yet, 
you can actually see his faith journey. Um, so, you know, if you will, he has an art to his own faith. And if I, if I had to bet, I would be willing to bet that he has a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, one of the areas, the other areas that he is an expert in is in the study of mythologies. And so he has a psychological approach to the scriptures. So with that said, um, you know, that I've always kind of filtered that, you know, when I'm listening to him and he's talking about biblical themes because he's highlighting uh, maybe some psychological truths that we can see in scriptural texts. Okay. So I've always kind of questioned whether or not he, you know, has what we would call the personal relationship with Jesus. So he kind of hasn't quite come on and quite out, he hasn't come out and said it. Like, I don't think he's ever said, I love Jesus and he's my Lord and Savior. I don't think he's ever said that. Um, and yet he has done in-depth studies. He did a series on the book of Genesis. He's currently doing a series on the, on the book of Exodus uh, with uh, Dennis Prager and biblical scholars from Cambridge. So that one's a big deal. Um, you have to get that one on Daily Wire. You have to pay for that one, unfortunately. But um, there's a lot of things that he's done that allude to the fact that he is a person of faith. And again, I think that he is um, because he will talk about the concepts of, of God the Father. He will talk about the concept that uh, Jesus was God in the flesh who who came comes into a broken world and becomes a man of sorrow um, because he knows that um, despite everything going on, there's just huge levels of injustice in the world. And, and so Jesus fits into that context and he is the image of the invisible God. And so Jordan recognizes that. Now, whether or not he sees it as literal or this is an important, like what I'm going to say is actually very important, uh, whether you agree or disagree, but it's something that we all need to be thinking about. So, so whether or not Jordan believes that Jesus is the actual son of God or not, um, what's really important is that he believes that it's true. Whether it's actual, he believes that it's true. Okay, for example, uh, I think it would probably be fair for me to say, and if you know otherwise, then then I don't know. Put something in the comments down below, and I'll respond to you. Uh, actually, I probably won't, but if you make, but reach on out to me. Um, but Jordan will probably give an in-depth work on the Book of Genesis. So he would probably say that there was no historical Adam and Eve. Again, he's a, he's a high-level academic, so he's not going to believe in a, in a historical Adam or Eve. So he, he doesn't believe that that's true, but yet he believes that the story is true. And the truth of the meaning of the story is actually more important than reality for him as a psychologist and well frankly for us too so we know 
you know, in the Christian faith and us, all of us granite creakers here, we all know, um, or we all, we all believe that Jesus is the son of God. We all know, and we all believe that God created the heavens and the earth and that, uh, Genesis one and Genesis two, that, you know, there's some of us that believe that it was literal, you know, actually even a literal seven days. And if you don't, if you don't know by now, I don't believe that, but so we believe that it's objectively true, but sometimes we live our lives as if it's not spiritually or morally true. So somebody can believe that Jesus was a real person, uh, lived a real life, died on the cross for our sins. They believe that objective truth, but they haven't identified with the spiritual truth because if they did, then they wouldn't be living the way that they're living. So he'll make this very important things that, that things are true because they're true. And you don't necessarily need an objective proof to that truth. So uh, he's a brilliant mind. And again, that can get, that can get sticky. That can get um, um, theological, you know, theologically sloppy. Um, you know, we don't necessarily want to go down certain abstract paths. But what this gentleman can do with his mind is he can frame out truth in, in such a strong psychological detail that you're just convinced that he knows that he's tapped into some truth. Okay, so he definitely is a man of hope, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Um, he has faced some incredible hardship in his own life from, um, from death to sickness, to the sickness of his children, to almost losing his wife. I mean, so this guy has gone through some, some heart wrenching tragedies that, uh, would cause most believers to curse God and die. And yet he is still holding to this hope and he still believes that the God of the Bible is the ultimate truth. He ironically believes that the scriptures are a divine book, a uniquely made book that communicate uh, deep, deep truths. It's just fascinating. So anyway, so uh, he is, he's not somebody that has grown up in an ivory tower. He's experienced real life. He's walked through people, he's walked with people through hard things. He said people walk through him through hard things. So where am I going with this? Uh, since, you know, experiencing this at this conference. Okay, so what I'm witnessing is him giving a lecture, a brilliant lecture, um, pretty much two hours straight, um, stream of consciousness, no notes, uh, saying some of the most profound stuff that I couldn't write down fast enough. Uh, he has an incredible grasp and insight on what is actually taking place in society, and he has this ability to speak truth uh, in love. So it was, it was a fascinating, like I was, I was fascinated about just his communication in and of itself. Uh, he was able to field on the spot uh, Q&A questions uh, like a champ. It was amazing to watch. Uh, so again, regardless, so what I'm, what I'm seeing here and what I'm feeling is that he is in touch with not only the human condition for, of individuals, like he knows that humans are like they're 
independently flawed. And so he's going to believe in in you know what we would call the the original sin or the fall of man. So he he's like he's deeply connected to what is going on inside of broken people. And what captivated me was that he had a grasp of not only the present, uh, but he also had a grasp of the future. So at this point, he has traveled all over the world because of his success and because of his platform and because of his positions. Uh, he has stepped into arenas with world leaders and other top-notch thinkers. He's had debates with world-class uh, atheists and communists. And so he has been exposed to so much of the world and so many political leaders, in addition to social leaders. Um, but I think that he knows things that we don't know about the world. He clearly knows things that we don't know about the personal psyche of an individual. But what clicked into me is like, oh my gosh, he knows things about the current state and the future state of our world that, that most, of us, most of us don't even, we're probably unaware of. And so, <coughs> excuse me, um, I think what really got me to sit up and, and take attention is that somebody asked him in the Q&A um, what impact will artificial intelligence have on the psyches of individuals and of society? And uh, is it, is it, you know, should we be alarmed? You know, is it everything that the world is saying? And so this is what kind of got me to, to perk up a little bit because he got very sober really quick and he gave a warning that we all need to be bracing for uh, the singularity, meaning that we all need to be ready because it's coming sooner than we, than we think of the, uh, of AI going up to the next level, whether it's AI being able to be self-aware uh, or conscious, like we're not quite sure exactly what, what, it, what artificial intelligence can do. Um, but he, he just said, AI will probably be in full force within two years from now. And so I don't, and, and he, unfortunately, he didn't say how he knew that. He didn't give any, uh, he didn't say like, you know, where he got that information, but he gave this very stern warning that we all need to be able, we all got to get our act together with to strengthen ourselves and then strengthen our communities because the world's going to drastically change within two years. I mean, and then he just kind of left it there. And so I don't even know what that means, but it, it kind of, it, it, it's disturbing. Um, so, um, you know, in light of the series that I'm doing on in the book of Revelation, uh, I've, I've alluded to this a couple of times, or at least one other time in a sermon. Uh, this Sunday, I talked about Revelation 13 and uh, how I think that AI, artificial intelligence, um, is 
the other side of the coin of the Antichrist. So uh, in Sunday's message, and you can catch this uh, online, but in Sunday's message, I was looking at chapter 13. So we have the dragon, we have the beast, uh, the false prophet is yet to come, but we've got those two. So basically we've got the, the antithesis or the mockery of God the Father and God the Son. So we've got the dragon, the devil, and we've got the antichrist, uh, the beast. And the way that it's worded, it doesn't flow smoothly in, in 13. It says that... Uh, uh, the dragon gave power and authority to the beast or the Antichrist, and he was able to sway the entire world. And the, the entire world worshipped the beast. Um, and then this beast is represented by some monster that's got seven heads and ten horns. And, you know, uh, end-time prophecy guys have always tried to figure out what that symbolism means and you know is it the united nations is it the cities of rome uh, 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 rome has seven hills and so some say that it's you know represents the seven heads of the dragon and this all or the monster of the beast or whatever and so there's all these kinds of uh things that we can infer onto the text of and, and you know when we're talking about the symbolism of these monsters because we don't believe that they're actually literal like this is some type of a code or this is a prophetic imagery apocalyptic imagery that a lot of the writers would use and, and again sometimes it is code like they're you know they're saying and they're calling you know it's like you know he, you know using a mascot for the 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 roman empire or whatever uh and so the beast is given power and authority to to deceive the nations, and the whole world falls in love with this antichrist who is solving the the problems of the world, and then um, he suffers a wound. And so let's just you know, all right. So let's just pick on somebody. You know, we could easily say that. I don't know. Pick your pick your public figure at the moment. Uh, we can make Elon Musk the Antichrist. Uh, people have called uh, Barack Obama the Antichrist. People have called Donald Trump the Antichrist. Uh, George Bush uh, the first was called the Antichrist for a little bit because he was promoting, literally promoting on the news. I remember seeing this when I was a kid, uh, a one world order. And so. Uh, you can lay over that that title of Antichrist upon anyone. And sometimes it does fit because there is a Antichrist, but the Bible also talks about uh, the spirit of Antichrist. So Hitler clearly had the spirit of Antichrist. Napoleon had the spirit of Antichrist. It is this, you know, this desire to uh, strip out culture from from nations and make them one uh you know unity of you know you know again one world order and that's what communism was actually fairly good at until it fell so um th this that's the spirit of antichrist but you know is there going to be one specific person of antichrist it could be it, it, in my mind it's kind of hard to uh see somebody get that popular because as humans 
you know, we usually like somebody for about a week or so, and then we decide that we're going to turn on them and hate them. So I don't think it, I don't find it in, in human nature for the entire world to fall in love with one person. But I do think that the world can fall in love with an idea or maybe a, a movement or a government. So that could be possible. Now, what is fascinating to me is that uh, the Antichrist receives a fatal wound on his head and, and, and dies, okay? Just goes down and dies. And then is resurrected, okay? So it is he is he is playing that role of Jesus. He's playing that role of Christ. He's mocking Jesus. Um, the whole world is captivated by the rebirth of this Antichrist, just kind of like how Jesus' resurrection changed our world. And so they're they're basically ripping off our story. The devil's ripping off our story. He's making fun of it, and he's going to say, well, you know, they just fell for it, and they're going to fall for it again, but this time I'm going to deceive everybody. And so the Antichrist resurrects, and then shortly it says, and the beast or the dragon told them to make an icon of the beast, an icon or an image of the beast. And then that icon image of the beast was uh, breath was breathed into it and it was given life to speak blasphemies against God. Now what's fascinating about it is who makes it? Uh, who makes this icon or the image of the beast that comes alive is that we make it. So he says he commanded them to make it. He commanded the people to make it. And then it, you know, it's get set, it gets set up and, and speaks these blasphemies and, and, uh, and mocks it. So I think that that could be a, an AI. Uh, again, will there be an actual real person, Antichrist? I think that's highly possible. Um, but I'm more concerned about the image of the Antichrist. I'm more uh, or the image of the beast. I'm more concerned about the AI version of it because that makes sense. Like, like I could see us getting there, and this is how this is how it could happen. Uh, also, in Revelation, we went over this in past weeks. Is that you know the end will come uh, when the lawless one will set up the abomination that causes desolation in the temple. Uh, so the Jewish temple, the third temple needs to be rebuilt. Uh, some say physically that might be up to debate. Uh, but what we do know is that there is a Jewish organization called the temple project and they've got plans. They're ready to go. Um, there's, I mean, it depends on what conspiracy theory you want to go down, but some are even saying, uh, that they've got this thing prefabricated. And uh, as soon as that the Dome of the Rock comes down, which will start World War III or World War IV, probably, you know, it's going to be a huge disaster if the Dome of the Rock comes down. But they're ready to build. They're going to, you know, I think that, I mean, some of them are willing to compromise and just squeeze the temple onto the, uh, onto the Temple Mount somewhere. But 
that's going to, that's not going to work because, you know, trying to convince a, a Jewish rabbi that uh, they'd have to settle for second best and they can't put the temple where it needs to be, which is over the spot uh, where Abraham attempted to sacrifice Isaac. Like, that's the spot. That's where heaven meets earth. And that's what they want. And so I don't think they're going to settle for anything less. So they could, you know, that that temple could be built. They're ready to go. Um, they've practiced. Uh, they have literally have set up mock temples and have practiced animal sacrifice. I don't think they, they actually killed the animals. I don't know. But you can YouTube that, too. You can see these Jews uh, pretending to sacrifice animals on a, on a, in a fake temple. Um, there are, uh, there's a, pro a prophecy, I forgot which book, but a prophecy of red heifers. Once the red heifer comes back, then the temple will be established. Supposedly there's four, uh, brand new red heifers that just entered into Israel, uh, this year. So like, you know, they're, they're, they're ready to go. So like we know it's on we know that things are are real 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 when the temple gets built the antichrist establishes a new world order or a an all world religion that's the that's the kind of the, the thing that uh is be, he that he deceives the nations by uh tricking them into worshiping him him and him alone so it's a one world religion so it's the epitome of the coexist sticker, the bumper sticker. So it's this is you know everybody gets to play kind of a thing. So the one world religion, which will be established, uh, the Jews are the the Antichrist is going to establish a peace treaty between Israel and the rest of the nations that hate them, uh, Palestine, etc., Jordan, Egypt, and it establishes this peace treaty. And then he basically stabs them in the back and then uh, reenacts another sacrifice that took place in ancient times, the abomination that causes desolation, and which sounds really cool. So basically in ancient times, um, some guy took a pig and sacrificed it on an altar. And that was like the abomination that caused desolation. That's where the term comes from. Antiochus IV said he's going to sacrifice a uh, pig on the Jewish altar just to really make them upset because Jews think that pigs are filthy animals. They don't, they don't eat bacon cheeseburgers. Um, when I was in Israel as a college student, uh, somebody had the bright idea to open up a hard rock cafe in Jerusalem. And uh, they couldn't keep the place open because the Jews kept on throwing rocks through the windows because they, they would serve bacon cheeseburgers at the hard rock cafe and they had it on their menu. And so not only do uh, Jews don't eat bacon, they don't mix their meat with their milk. So they don't eat cheeseburgers. And so it was like a double whammy. And so that really made a lot of people mad. Anyway. Um, so it's an abomination that, that, that we're getting into. And so one idea that I had on what is this abomination that causes desolation like, is somebody really going to sacrifice a pig in a temple that's never been built yet? It could happen. It's very well likely, you know. I mean, we crazy things are happening these days. So that could happen. But to me, it almost even seems like an abomination of God's natural creation, which is us, in light, <coughs> excuse me, of this whole AI mess. 
would be something akin to transhumanism. And so right now we're messing around with transsexual stuff, um, which is, you know what? I mean, you could you can have empathy and sympathy for somebody that's that's confused about their sexuality. Totally get it. And is it concerning? Yeah, it could be concerning because I would agree with Jordan Peterson. Uh, it's not good for individuals, and in the long term, it's not good for society. And it's definitely not good for children to be transsexual. Uh, again, they don't know if they're boys, girls, or dinosaurs. So, But what really concerns me would be the transhumanism movement where we literally get plugged into the the matrix or we you know upgrade our bodies to be superhuman bodies and and we're getting there i mean you know in some ways if you've had a triple bypass surgery you're kind of a transhuman you've had the help of technology to keep you alive um we're pretty much cyborgs already uh with our cell phones i mean the amount of time I spend on my cell phone is is kind of scary, but like it does so much. It's so good. Like it it has simplified my life so much. I love my cell phone. I don't think I could live without it. So I'm already integrated into te technology, and then it's already happening. But what Elon Musk is doing is that he is putting the chip in your brain with the Neuralink thing, and so these are very real, uh, real life applications that are taking place now that could literally create a new human species, whether it's technologically advanced, um, you know, there's genetic mutations and experiments that and cloning that is taking place. And it's just a matter of time before we find some uh, evil scientists hidden laboratory somewhere where they have crossbred humans with other species. Like that is a, I mean, I know that sounds weird and conspiratorial, but we know that the Chinese have messed around with stuff like that to make super soldiers. And um, I guess probably the big question is, is that how much would God allow us to manipulate his creation, the way that he's created things? Uh, would he really allow us to create a new species through technology, whether it is, you know, through computer chips or through genetic engineering? I'm, I'm just don't, I just don't think that he could do it. So, you know, there's that whole, you know, back to that whole concept of singularity of AI becoming fully conscious. And, and then I think simultaneously, uh, we'll have uh, a a birth of a birth of a of a new species, if you will, and, and an advanced advanced species that um, that we probably won't be able to compete with. I think God's gonna. I think God will step in at that point. So I think He'll step in uh, where this image of the icon is given breath to to lead where the abomination that causes desolation uh, is put on the altar and saying that this is this is what God wants. He wants this abomination. And again, I think it could be a genetic hybrid type of a weird thing. So 100% conspiracy theory area is there, but it just seems like a lot of these conspiracy theories are coming true these days. And 
It's like what they the, the truth is stranger than fiction. So back to Jordan, and again, you know, he's he he hit on some of this stuff, um, on some of these ideas, both the idea of AI being a threat to humans and and uh, the concerns for uh, a transhuman existence in the future. Um, and so why do, I think he's important for the, the, the modern church. A couple of reasons why I think Jordan Peterson is important, if not a prophet for the modern church. Um, I obviously am looking up to the guy. I, I like I said, I'm a fanboy. I haven't necessarily have been a fanboy um uh, for modern pastors preachers as of late that's a little concerning so jordan peterson is a high profile public figure and our christian leadership that have fallen into those categories of high-profile public pastor Christian leaders, um, they just kind of been been embarrassing. Frankly, it's we haven't had we haven't had a whole lot of uh, Christian leaders that that we can look up to these days. But I think that you can look up to Jordan Peterson, and here's here's why. One is that he is um, he's refused to be a dumb believer. So he's re, he's he thinks logically. He he has recaptured the the importance of the Christian mind of actually thinking these things through and being biblically minded. And he I, and again I believe that he is. Whether he pushes it too far into the realm of psychology, I'm not quite sure, but. He's biblically minded. Watch his bit on Genesis, and watch some of his. If you you know if you want to go further, watch his stuff on uh, on Exodus. I don't see a whole lot of Christian um, theologians being as um, exploratory and and transparent with the material that he is, and his, the way that he applies it is. I think we all need to get to that point. So that's one reason. He's he's a smart Christian. He is a compassionate. Uh, I know I, this isn't, uh, this is quoted in the Reagan era, but he's compassionate conservative, meaning that he deeply cares for individuals and their well-being. Um, I would say a lot of pastors do deeply care for the individuals and the well-being. But this is something else that he does, is that he focuses on character. He focuses on uh, making sure that you decide that you choose to be the, the, the best version of you that you could possibly be. And there, there is no room for being lazy or compromising or making excuses so he's the type of individual that holds the mirror up to himself and to others. And I think that that's why he's important to the Christian church is because of the levels and to the depth that he goes into um, 
uh, emotional health, basically. So he's a big proponent of emotional health. I think the church can learn a lot from that. Uh, thirdly, he is a man that is courageous. So he's standing up to what he believes is right, and he's making very public statements. Um, and he owns up when he has blown it or when the hyperbole gets off the trails. Uh, he owned up to being a troll, meaning, you know, maybe being a little too aggressive on certain people and certain things. And so he is, um, uh, he's confessional. So he doesn't have a problem being courageous and standing up for truth. And when he makes a mistake, he confesses even in public realms. So I think that that would be something that we could also learn from. And then fourthly, why I think that he is important for the church is because he is tenacious and doesn't give up when things have gone really, really bad. And so I, we, we've seen this too with church leaders. We've seen them give up when things get tough. And, um, and so I guess that's why I think that he could possibly be the modern prophet for the Christian church these days. And his ability to connect with young men uh, is brilliant, which again, the, the local church hasn't been able to do. So um, that is, that's my pitch for Jordan Peterson. I, again, this is the big idea. I think he's important for the church. And so I want to encourage you to check him out. Um, you know, he might, uh, he might make your, your hair stand up on your arms. He might say things that will offend your Aunt Ruth. I don't know. But um, if you can hang with his intellect, it's definitely worth it. And so uh, check him out. Uh, I want to say probably the next two podcasts, I'm going to go over some of his, his, uh, some of his books and some of his rules for life. And so I want to, so my next two podcasts, we're going to be looking at his rules for life and, uh, we're going to have fun doing it. And so if you want to just join me on this, this little journey of, of making yourself a better individual, uh, that's going to be the next two. And so I'm excited about it. Well, we'll have some, we'll have some art for you too. We'll have some graphics. I've got some cool stuff. All right. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening to the art of faith podcast. God bless.